You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Plants can give us all sorts of clues when we're trying to identify them. One of the ways they can help us is with their flowers, which are often remarkably similar between members of the same family. In this episode, we're incredibly lucky to have somebody that's been very influential for me personally in my own plant journey, both before I began my formal studies and then again during my TAFE studies. If you've never read the Botany in a Day book, watched the accompanying Botany in a Day YouTube video, or visited the Wildflowers and Weeds website, you've definitely been missing out and I would highly encourage you to follow the links in the show notes of this episode. He is, of course, Thomas J. Alpel. Welcome to the show, Tom. Yeah, thanks for having me, Daniel. This is great. So how can identifying plants to a family level be advantageous? You know, uh, related plants have similar characteristics for identification, and they often have similar uses. So I guess, you know, when I started learning about plants uh, as a teenager, it was like one at a time. And so trying to learn hundreds and hundreds of plants one at a time but without any real rhyme or reason to it. And then when I got onto the, uh, you know, the concept of families and understanding that, uh, then it was like start recognizing these family patterns that related plants have similar flowers, sometimes similar leaves or, or other characteristics. And so uh, with that, you can recognize a plant to, the, to you know, one particular family or another and that will often also tell you a lot about the uses uh, or the, the, the properties of the plants. So whether that's uh, medicinal, let's say a lot of members of the rose family have uh, tannins, tannic acid in them that makes them very astringent. It's kind of a, a drying uh, property. And so um, I actually just moments ago had a, um, a little cut on my wrist that was just wouldn't stop bleeding. It was just a minor pinprick, and uh, put a tea bag on there. That wasn't uh, wasn't a rose family thing, but just put a tea bag on there that has that astringent property to stop the bleeding. And so, um, you know, if you know family patterns, there's a lot of different families that have those kind of qualities, a, a drying astringent quality that you could use. And so, it just kind of look around you, see, you know, what uh, what plants are there and reach for something in the right family, uh, even if it's even if you don't necessarily know that specific plant's name. And so that's true for medicinal plants, it's true for uh, edible plants, that, um, like plants in the mustard family, for example. Uh, you can come up to a plant you've never seen before and uh, recognize it as a mustard, four petals, six stamens, four tall, two short. Mustard family, you can eat it, try it out, see if you like it, throw it in a salad. Absolutely. And it's funny that you also mentioned the mustard family too, because one of my first experiences after sort of being on your website and spending a bit of time there on wildflowers and weeds, I actually came across a plant at Sorrento Beach just on the Mornington Peninsula near Melbourne. It was a succulent plant and I was actually able to identify it as a member of the mustard family due to the characteristics that you just mentioned. And I was actually able to rinse those plants in the seawater and just begin eating them, even though I didn't know their specific plant, because I knew that they are a member of the mustard family and that therefore they would be safe to eat. 
And they did taste just a little bit like broccoli, but with a very kind of a hot mustard kick to them. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Did you happen to learn what the individual plant was later? Never, but I did know that it was a yeah. mustard family member. You know, that's all you really need to know. And uh, <laughs> I think uh, names are overrated in many ways. And they're um, particularly, you know, they've been changing the, the names a lot over time, even the botanical names. And uh, so, yeah, sometimes I just think names are overrated. And it's like, let's get to know the plant, forget the names. <laughs> Yeah, with um, some of the uh, walks, the plant walks that I do, I like to do what I call uh, deer botany. And that is uh, that, you know, the, the deer, uh, they don't have anybody to teach them plants. They don't, you know, they don't go to college to learn botany. <laughs> they learn by going out and, and tasting everything and deciding, you know, uh, is this food or not food or maybe has some medicinal qualities. And so I actually do that. You know, I mean, I know which plants they absolutely don't want to mess with. but um, most plants are pretty harmless, even if they're not edible or if they have uh, some toxic qualities, even uh, you can still safely taste them in, you know, minute quantities. And so, yeah, so we'll go along and even with the school groups, go along and browse on everything along the trail and, and kind of talk about it and, you know, what, what are the properties of this plant and how might that be useful? Absolutely. And I would also like to just add here that it's never safe for you to go out and eat wild foods, especially if you don't have somebody who is an expert at identifying the local plants in your area. And we certainly don't take any responsibility for people who are going out there and eating wild foods. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, like I said, I, I know what plants to steer the, uh, these groups away from, so it's not done blindly. Hmm, absolutely. And a podcast is limited as an audio format, but we will have some links to your excellent video, your website, and your book, Botany in a Day, which is excellent, and both Ben and I have actually read. Mm -hmm. What relevance does evolution play in the way that plants look similar and different to each other? So, you know, there's, there's different pressures on plants all the time. And I guess what I've noticed is that plants within a family tend to have flowers that look similar while the vegetation can vary quite a bit. Uh, so ex for example, going back to the rose family, if you were to look at uh, like a strawberry blossom and a blackberry blossom, there's you know, a lot of similarities in there, more so than in the vegetation, that uh, the, the flowers don't change as fast as the vegetation does. And, uh, and I've noticed, you know, like just with dandelions, for example, we'll see dandelions dry, growing in a, you know, hot dirt driveway and they're just super compact and, you know, small leaves and dark green. Whereas I find them in mixed woods and a dandelion life, leaf might be a foot long or more that's just trying to stretch out and reach up to the the light uh, in competition with everything else. And they're like real light green, real translucent, uh, and of course, uh, less bitter tasting than the uh, dark green ones. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure for the, the leaves to adapt to different environmental factors, more so than is, is directed at the flowers in the short term. It's funny that you mentioned dandelions, because that's actually one of my favorite weeds to eat. And they're, they are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lucky me. So, Tom, speaking about flowers, can you explain the different parts of the archetypal flower? Sure. So, 
Whenever you're talking about uh, flower parts, you always want to start at the outside and work your way in. So on the outside, you have the sepals. And on most flowers, as it's going to be green, it's kind of like the, the bud, the, you know, the flower bud where everything else is wrapped up in. So those uh, green sepals will open up and the flower will pop out of that. There are flowers where they're not green, but most are green. So, yeah, and then you have uh, your petals. That, you know, you've all seen flower petals. <laughs> and then the uh, stamens, that's the male part of the flower. Uh, it's easy to remember because the stamens always stay men. And then at the center of the flower, you have the pistil. That's the female part of the uh, flower. And you can remember that as the pistil packin' mama. And so um, sepals, petals, stamens, pistil. Uh, you'll have flowers that are missing some of those. Uh, like, you know, for example, some flowers will have separate, they'll be separate male and female flowers, either on the same plant or on completely different plants. But you'll never find those parts out of order. And uh, that's really helpful because, you know, the, there's so many plants that have evolved in so many different directions that sometimes it's a little hard to determine, well, what is what. But if you start out the outside and work your way in, then you can distinguish readily between sepals, petals, stamens, and pistil. Yeah, and we also have some strange ones like the aster family flowers. Can you explain an aster family flower head for us? You know, aster flowers are much like other flowers. They're just the, the grouping of them is what's really different there is the what we'd look at is, say, the petals on like a sunflower, for example. Uh, each one of those petals is actually a flower in itself, where the petals have fused over and flopped, fused together and flopped over to one side. So you have basically two types of flowers. You have disc flowers in the middle, uh, and then ray flowers on the outside. So the uh, disc flowers, if you look real close at those, you'll see each one of those is a little five-petaled flower, and each flower produces a single sunflower seed. And so I think of it as being, uh, you know, for the aster family, as being kind of like, uh, you know, that they have these discs, and the disc is kind of like a, a garden where the flowers are planted, and each flower produces one sunflower seed. So if you have that uh, pitted disc, just like when, um, you know, with a dandelion, when it goes to seed and you got the little fuzz on there that you can blow off, you'll have that pitted disc left over. And when you have that uh, pitted disc, you have a composite flower characteristic of the aster family. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, and as you sort of say, that's we're talking about sunflowers, daisies, dandelions, all those sort of ray flowers. And then there are also some other kind of weird ones in there, like the thistles and sort of stuff like that. And then we have some other weird ones over here that are called billy buttons, which kind of look like a yellow ball on a stick. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of them. I, I, don't, I don't recognize that name. Now, I know like with the thistles, that's a case where they have all disc flowers, but no ray flowers. So, so they're asters, they just don't have any ray flowers. And dandelions are just the opposite. They have ray flowers all the way to the middle and no disc flowers. So what are some of the different evolutionary forces that have encouraged plants to change these archetypal flower structures into sort of shapes that suit their own needs? Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've got a lot of different forces. Of course, 
the flower evolution is deeply connected with insect evolution that you know primitive insects that were basically tracking their way across from one flower to another exchanging pollen that you know specialized over time to efficiently fly from one flower to another while the the flowers you know adapted to really call them in as an efficient uh, method of pollinate pollination and uh you know and then they've just continued to specialize in terms of you know the shapes of the flowers the color uh, what types of insects that they're catering to and yeah i've all found different strategies that uh, ends up resulting in different uh, types of flowers yeah that's a great explanation and then we have some flowering plants like true grasses in the family poaceae that are actually wind pollinated yes yeah so the grasses you know they're they're considered flowering plants just like uh, any with showy flowers the difference being that they're wind pollinated so they're not investing energy in producing showy flowers and the same is true for uh, many of our our trees like uh, willows and cottonwoods for example uh, do you do you have any willows or cottonwoods uh, down under? Have they been introduced or are they exist there? I don't know of any natives. I think that they're mainly introduced here. Introduced, okay. Yeah. yeah, so I guess what you're saying is they haven't invested in trying to attract other pollinators. Instead, they're just using the wind. Right, just a different strategy, just uh, putting uh, the pollen out there to the wind. Uh, and in the case of uh, like the, the uh, pine trees, for example, they each each pine tree has a different shape of pollen, and then the cones are aerodynamically shaped to extract a different shape of pollen out of the wind so that each species grabs the right type of pollen. So yeah, a very different strategy where the flowering plants are mostly you know trying to attract uh, insects to transport the pollen. You know the ones that are wind pollinated are more just putting out enough pollen to the wind to uh, you know, to make sure that they hit the target there. Hmm. Yeah, and this seems like a pretty good spot to make the point that conifers, ferns, and bryophytes are actually quite different to flowering plants. Yes, that is for sure. That so we have your ferns and bryophytes. All those are spore-bearing plants, and you know, so they're definitely not flowering plants. And then you have like your conifers that are considered naked seeds because the. Uh, the cones actually stretch open a little bit that the pollen lands directly on the egg cell to uh, to start growing that into a seed, whereas the flowering plants have an ovary that's totally enclosed uh, within the plant, and the pollen has to land on the tip of the stigma there, the tip of the pistil, and actually grow something that looks a little bit like a root that pushes down through the soft tissues to find the egg cells there and to, uh, you know, begin the growth of that seed. Thank you. And we're actually talking about flowering plants today. So for this episode, we're just going to forget about all those other plants that do not have flowers. Mm -hmm. So you sort of started talking about it there, but can you explain how can it be that some plants have what we think of as like a traditional kind of a fruit, and then other flowering plants have like a pod or something like that, that we wouldn't necessarily think of as being a kind of a fruit? Yeah. You know, the... Um the ovary of the plant is super flexible to over time, at least over geologic time to, uh, you know, to come up with many different forms. And so, you know, the fruit, like the, 
uh, your cherry, for example, as uh, the seed in the middle there and the fleshy fruit on the outside. And that's what we think of as a fruit. But uh, when amongst botanists, we're, we look at it a little bit differently, that the fruit is the, the ovary wall, basically whatever that form that takes. So that could be the form of a berry, or it could be the form of, say, like a, a maple seed, like a, a winged seed where you've got a, you know, kind of a hard seed with a wing attached to it. That uh, many, many different forms, and not always in ways that we expect. That, for example, if you look at a strawberry, the strawberry doesn't have just one pistil and one ovary there. It actually has a whole bunch of pistils. And what those mature into is a dry seed. And so from a botanist standpoint, the, uh, the fruit of the strawberry is these little dry seeds that are on the fleshy part, which is actually, instead of being the fruit of the plant, is actually a fleshy uh, little, like a receptacle there where all the pistils were embedded that has swollen up and, and become this... Uh, Juicy, what we you know in common parlance we refer to as a fruit, but uh, bot- botanical standpoint, the fruit is a little dry seed on the surface of that. And that's really quite incredible when you're talking about that this strawberry is actually a receptacle, which is a part of the stem. So you're really eating a juicy stem, and the true fruits sort of almost get in the way of the juicy experience of eating that receptacle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and there's there's really a lot of you know, nature is just so creative in uh, coming up with a million different answers, which are often very similar that, you know, that a lot of plants produce fleshy fruits with essentially the purpose that uh, that those will be eaten. And so they're providing a reward to an animal to eat this fruit that'll then transport and uh, defecate the, the seeds out somewhere else to spread the plant. And so, you know, there's just so many different ways of doing that, that sometimes it's the ovary and in the case of the strawberry being more the receptacle. And then so these methods that plants use to do what they need to do actually help us identify where they belong. So generally, you'll find that plants of the same species are very similar to each other. Then you have plants of the same genus, which are slightly different, but still very similar. Then you go up to the level of family where they're sort of all quite different, but still have a lot of similarities. And then, for example, you go all the way up to angiosperms, which are flowering plants, which all have flowers. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, yeah, there's, diff- you know, there's patterns that are good for recognizing uh, certain families, usually based on the, the flower patterns. Uh, fruits can be a little bit more variable in a family. It, it really changes, you know, just less consistency overall than the flowers. But, you know, knowing the fruit types... Uh, and, you know, this coming back to this idea of learning plants one at a time versus sort of learning them, you know, hundreds at a time is take like a, a gooseberry or currant, for example, is that, you know, instead of learning those, each one is separate plants, you kind of learn that, uh, well, these are bushes that have these palmate uh, leaves that the, the leaves are kind of palm-like with uh, like five lobes on them typically. And then they have these uh, berries that are a little bit translucent with uh, longitudinal stripes on them. And, you know, with that pattern, you can recognize uh, currants and gooseberries, uh, hundreds of them all over the world. And so, uh, you know, instead of trying to learn each one separately, you just need to be able to learn the basic pattern and recognize the many different variations, the uh, leaf, you know, size and texture and 
color of the berries and you know and some of them are smooth and some of them are hairy or almost spiny but otherwise you know these kind of underlying patterns are persistent uh, throughout the family or the, the genus there yeah and now we're talking about leaves and there are many different ways you can describe a leaf so you can sort of mention the margin you can mention the shape you can mention the texture you can mention all these sorts of things and you've sort of described palmate leaves You've sort of said that there are some furry leaves out there. And then you can even have some leaves that look like multiple leaves when they're actually a single leaf. So that's called a compound leaf. And they can sort of be broken up into palmately compound or pinately compound, singly compound, doubly compound. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah, uh, leaf leaves take all different uh, shapes and forms for sure. And, uh, you know, just coming back to the rose family, it seems to me my favorite family today is that uh, if you, there, there's a, a lot of plants in the rose family that'll have simple, a simple leaf, which is, you know, it's just one leaf that isn't divided. And so I'm thinking right now of like a service berry, which you probably don't have there. But um, it, the leaf, the individual leaf is oval and serrated. It looks a little bit like an apple leaf, but more precisely, you know, you ha I'm sure you've seen rose leaves, and rose, roses tend to be pinnately divided, that it's one leaf has a bunch of smaller leaflets. Well, what's interesting in the rose family is, is that there's uh, very often those leaflets sort of jump from genus to genus in a similar pattern. So whereas the serviceberry has a simple leaf, the rose rose genus has this pinnate leaf that looks like a bunch of surface berry leaves attached to, you know, a single leaf stem. And, uh, and you know, and, and you could take the same leaf shape and look at uh, the strawberry, which is a three-parted leaf. So there's three leaflets. And each one of those looks a lot like a surface berry uh, leaf or like a leaflet off of a rose. Uh, roses might be a little bit more narrow and the strawberry a little bit more wide, but it's that uh, oval serrated. And this is what I, I call like a secondary pattern for the rose family that uh, in general, the roses have uh, typically five petals and numerous stamens. The, you know, is a good indicator for the roses. The leaf pattern, this oval serrated leaf or leaflet is a good uh, additional quality to look at that uh, definitely isn't on all roses, but is quite common within the family. Yeah, totally. And we are going to do a whole episode just on leaves, so we might leave the leaves for another episode. But I'd like to touch briefly on weeds because you've sort of helped shape my understanding of weeds. We do like to separate them from other desirable plants, but can you tell us, is it possible for weeds to actually be quite beautiful in their own right and perhaps even perform functions that are very necessary and important? Mm -hmm. You know, calling a plant as a weed is just a human judgment call. There's no um you know, no scientific category of weed. And so uh, it, it's basically any plant that is growing where you don't want it to. And uh, although I haven't been to Australia yet, I did spend some time touring in New Zealand. And I recall that the lodgepole pine, which is native to my area here, uh, it's called a lodgepole pine because that's the, the long skinny poles that were used for teepee lodges. It was planted in New Zealand and now it has become a weed there. So if you look it up uh, on you know websites in New Zealand, they refer to it as a invasive weed. <laughs> and so um, 
So it's really, it's just growing where people don't want it to grow. So there's, so that's, you know, one type of, uh, one way that the plants are called weeds is uh, particularly with plants that have been introduced or are invasive are uh, referred derogatively as weeds. Uh, and then the other that I notice is that there's some plants that are colonizers, say like where there's, you know, bare ground when there's been disturbance, say from, uh, you know, doing road work and disturbing the, the soil along the road bank there. The early plants that come in, uh, they grow fast and set seed. Basically, these are plants that are adapted to barren soils that are going to dry out quickly. So they tend to grow really fast and set seed and die. And so they come up in, from several different families, but uh, the mustard family is a really common one. And they tend to look weedy is that they're, they're not necessarily attractive plants, particularly when they die. And so, so that's, yeah, you know, we, we refer to those as weeds as well. And as I've mentioned, we will be including links in the show notes to point our listeners towards two free resources, which you've just willingly given out there to people. And I think that's wonderful. And that's your Wildflowers and Weeds website, as well as the Botany in a Day YouTube video. And these two resources have actually been incredibly influential on me. And I really do thank you for putting those just out there for free for people like me to just sort of learn. Well, and I thank you for uh, helping to spread the word on that. Um... The, uh, you know, I've put a lot of material on the website and the, uh, the YouTube video, the Botany in a Day tutorial is really a great place for people to, to get in and, and understand a lot very quickly about this idea of uh, learning plants in their properties according to family patterns. And so the, uh, it gives you a good start. And then the, the book uh, can be used worldwide uh, for plant identification. Uh, and then the, um, I also have a children's botany books. Uh, Shunley's Quest, a botany adventure for kids ages 9 to 99. Uh, and there's a sequel to, sequel to that now, Shunley's Quest 2, a botany adventure at the fallen tree. And with each of these books, there's a card game that teaches the plant families included in the books. And so whether you're using the kids' books or using botany in a day, you find the card game is uh, super helpful for uh, just really practicing uh, the plant family recognition. And so you can play games like uh, memory or concentration. Uh, we play slap flower and crazy flowers and wildflower rummy, uh, all these different games you can play with, uh, you know, one deck of cards. And, it, you know, until you get to the point where you know these plants immediately without having to, you know, think about it when you, when you encounter them. And uh, so, you know, I'll play the game with people and then to test them out going and looking at real plants and you know that were not in the card game and they can recognize those patterns uh that you know that that was that they learned those in the game so super easy way to get started with plant and from there there's uh there's no turning back <laughs> there's always more <laughs> yeah and i can actually attest to that personally some of the sort of easier plant families that i would recommend people get started with are the carrot family the aster family the mustard family Mallow family, Rose family. I mean, it's kind of impossible to go through them all here, but definitely check out both of those resources because they are a wonderful place for anybody to start learning. Well, thank you. So that's, that's great to hear. <laughs> so what is something that most people don't know about plants, Tom? You know, uh, for most people, I think plants are just like, uh, you know, the, the green world is just kind of like pretty wallpaper. It's just a background and it doesn't, you know, plants aren't really distinguished that much. It's you really need to 
get in, you know, whatever you do in life, even just uh, learning mathematics, you, you can't do math until you've uh, built up the neurons to do that. You start with some simple ones, you know, two plus two is four. And a few years later, you're doing algebra there. And, you know, you can't do that without having started uh, at, at the beginning. And so when you start looking at plants, they're just all kind of green. And, you know, and, and you have to worry about plants that look alike. And it's like, well, they don't actually look alike. But when you're starting out looking at plants, the, the, everything kind of looks alike. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and that's where the, these uh, plant patterns, these family patterns give you critical skills for, you know, determining, oh, this belongs to that family and this is why. And then when you do that, you're sort of able to break through that green wall and see, you know, the world as more individuals. And, you know, you may be using family patterns, but you're seeing, well, you know, this, these plants are totally different, but they belong to the same family. And uh, so, you know, it's really, uh, we, we've just in our culture have kind of separated ourselves from nature and treat it like wallpaper. And I just think it's important to kind of dive in and, you know, get into the wallpaper and see what's, uh, see what's really out there in the world. Yeah, get into the matrix and sort of hack the coding to figure out what's going on. There you go. <laughs> So, Tom, I've got a fun one here for you. What is a plant? Mm. Well, okay. I didn't know I was going to be tested here. So. <laughs> yeah, just, it's just whatever comes to your mind. Like, I think that that's a question that people probably don't often think about. Sure. You know, the, I, you know, the first uh, thing you want to kind of jump onto is the chlorophyll, that plants have chlorophyll, and that's why they're green, except a lot of plants have lost their chlorophyll and uh, become parasitic on uh, other plants said, yeah, I don't have any chlorophyll. Uh, but you know, what's really remarkable is, is just how everything is related. You know, you, you, you see these relationships amongst the plants of the same family that have similar patterns. But, uh, you know, when you start going uh, back and looking at uh, relations between the families, following this, you know, back in time, it's like, well, all plants are related. And ultimately, we're all connected that you know, it's a little little beyond the uh, sixth cousin or something, but uh, uh, we are all kin on this this planet uh, that we all have common ancestors, even between plants and people. Yeah, absolutely. And that is far out to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. When we uh, sit down to dinner, we're eating our relatives. <laughs> yeah. So we need to uh, honor and respect them that way. So, Tom, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about? You know, I've, I've been teaching all my life, all my adult life here, both through writing, writing as being kind of a powerful way to, I mean, it's time consuming because you really have to take the time to put this information down and refine it. It's never the same on paper as it is in your head, you know. So I like teaching through writing because I can reach a lot of people in a small way. But I really like teaching in person, the more intimate uh, uh, connection with the students. And, uh, you know, when I started teaching 30 years ago, I was doing like weekend workshops or week-long workshops. And I just found that I really gravitated to the longer is better. So I actually, uh, through my Green University program, we have this year-long immersion. So right now, uh, I have a, a dozen students that are here learning Stone Age skills. So everything from making, uh, you know, tanning their own hides, making their own clothing to, uh, you know, a lot of the, the plant work, the plant identification and wild food foraging. And we're actually uh, carving out, I've done one dugout canoe before, we're doing another one. 
and we're making all Stone Age gear. And, and next uh, or this coming summer, we'll do a six to seven week journey down the Yellowstone River here in Montana. So all uh, Stone Age gear, you know, buckskin clothes, stone knives, the works. And uh, so really, you know, it's it's exciting work because it's not just like uh, a knowledge exchange, you know, not like I have a student that comes along and just extracts knowledge and leaves, but we actually uh, build up a relationship that these become lifelong connections. And um, that's really satisfying as a, as a teacher. Uh, yes, and that's a super fun class. Um, uh, we have a botany and foraging intensive where take, uh, you know, people come for a couple of weeks and uh, we travel around the Western United States here and practice the plant identification skills in depth and uh, do, yeah, wild food foraging and uh, other special stops and herbalism and uh, permaculture and the works. Thank you so much, Tom. I hope our listeners have learned a lot about identifying plant families using flowers. And I also hope that they'll go out and use both your free resources and your paid resources. Thank you so much again for coming on the show, mate. Well, thank you, Daniel. Uh, thanks for uh, hosting. This, is, this was fun. Trying to identify plants down to their family level is a great way to cure plant blindness. Once you've watched the Botany in a Day video and checked out the Wildflowers and Weeds website, you'll start to notice that walking around and looking at plants becomes a little bit more interesting. Take your time when you're learning about the plant families as well. Maybe just five easy ones to start with. You could go with the Pea family, Fabaceae, the Aster family, Asteraceae, the Apple and Rose family, Rosaceae, the mint family, Lamiaceae, and maybe even the mallow family, Malvaceae. If you haven't listened to episode 13 of this podcast, Plant Identifying with Scientific Names with our guest Stuart Williams, I definitely recommend listening to that one because it does help round out some of the information that's been presented in this episode. Make sure you do also check out the links in the show notes because there's an absolute ton of value in there as well. <laughs> oh, it's good to know. <laughs> you know, it's like I want to make a positive difference in the world, and I'm glad that uh, that it's getting out there, that uh, people are learning and uh, putting this to use.